We're going to jump right in today into our Bible study. Here at Calvary, typically what we do is we will take a book of the Bible and we'll teach through the book. So we just finished First and Second Corinthians, and we're going to be jumping into a book here in a couple of weeks. But we wanted to take a few weeks and talk about what's commonly referred to as spiritual warfare. We're calling this the, the unseen war. And as we began a few weeks ago, one of the things that I did is I, I said, this is the absolute best book on spiritual warfare I have ever read in my whole entire life. And uh, so hopefully uh, you'll be intrigued, but it's by Chip Ingram and it's called The Invisible War. And so I referred to that a couple of times. And, and as we began a few weeks ago, as we began a few weeks ago, and the first week we went to Ephesians chapter 6 and we talked about this unseen war and how there is really is a Satan and uh, how he has schemes for our life. And uh, so we talked about that as we, we were in that chapter. And then the, the next week we talked about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and how important that is in, in our life. And then the third week of our study, we talked about how Jesus, although he was God in the flesh, when he came to the earth, he emptied himself of the power that's associated with being God. So all of the miracles that Jesus did, he had to do as a man, not because he was God, which makes it very incredible that that he was able to do those things. And then that week we looked at the source of Jesus's power and how he he emphasized prayer. And he, he believed that, or he taught that that was the source of where his power came from. Well, it was the next week, last week, that we went back to Ephesians 6 and we talked about how Paul talked about persisting in prayer and the importance of prayer in spiritual warfare. Now, today I want to go just one step further with this. I want to talk about, okay, so, so how do you pray? I mean, how, how do you really do that? Most of us, uh, uh, we, we pray at meals and, and uh, some of us have a, a, a quiet time, but we know of people who, who pray for an extended period of time. How do they do that? How do they do that? And we want to talk about that today. Now, as uh, we get into this, I want to also share another book. And this book is the absolute best book on prayer that I've ever read in my whole entire life, okay? So this <laughs> This one's on spiritual warfare, this one's on prayer, and uh, this here is by a man named Elmer Towns. Now, Elmer Towns is the co-founder of Liberty University. I've read most of his books. He's a brilliant man, deeply spiritual, loves the Lord, and uh, this book, Praying the Lord's Prayer for Spiritual Breakthrough, no kidding, is the the best book on prayer that that I've ever read, and I've I've, uh, certainly read a few. So I want to commend that to you. If uh, you want to go a little bit further in your study on prayer, that would be, if you're just going to read one book in your whole life on prayer, let it be that one. You'll be glad that you did. Now, as, I, as uh, we get into this today, once again, I have to say there's so much more than we could cover in just one teaching. This is kind of the Reader's Digest version, so if you want to go a little bit further and expand it, again, there's a couple of books that, that you can, you can uh, certainly do that with. So we are in today, we're going to take a a kind of a detour and go into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount as it begins, Jesus goes up onto the mountain and uh, it says his disciples come to him, they sit down and he speaks to them. And so this is a discipleship, discipleship message, but we find at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has allowed the crowd to listen in while he teaches his disciples. Now as he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, he turns his attention to the subject of prayer. 
And as he uh, and he's going to talk about what many of us grew up calling the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we're going to talk about that today because it, we're going to look at it in a slightly different way. Before we he gets into that, there's a couple of things that he wants us to know, and uh, so I'm going to pick it up in verse seven. I'm going to read verses seven and eight of chapter six of Matthew, and he says, "When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition." Now, I know some of your Bibles don't use the word repetition, and, and that's sad because um, if you have the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, most of your Bibles will have the word repetition. If you have the NIV translation, it doesn't use the word repetition, and, uh, but I, I like the word repetition because it captures the heart of uh, what he's saying. He says, now when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, and then make sure you underline this, your father knows what you, what you have need of even before you ask him. Your father knows what you have need of before you ask him. So as we get into this, the first thing Jesus wants us to know is, as, as uh, he gives this to us, what we're going to talk about is uh, not a prayer that is to be repetitiously repeated. He says, don't, don't use repetition as you do this. Now, and the reason I say that is some of us come from a tradition that would say, uh, go say the, the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer repetitiously several times. So Jesus knows that somebody's going to do that. So up front, he says, whatever you do, don't, don't use repetition in doing this. Um, and, and we'll see why as we travel through. And another thing that's going to be important for us to realize is that he says, your father knows what you have need of before you ask him. And that's going to be interesting to us because what we're going to find is that we, um, what, he, in this, uh, what we're going to call an outline for prayer, we're going to find that our needs are not the first part of, the, uh, of, of this. And so uh, he, he's, he, he says, so when you begin this, just know that your heavenly father knows what you have need of even before you ask him. And then in verse 9, the very first line in my translation, it says, pray then in this way. Now, some of your Bibles will say a little bit different. If you have uh, the New American, again, it says that. If you have the NIV translation, it will say how you should pray. How many of your Bibles say something like that? Okay, that's good. And uh, if you have the King James or the New King James, it will say something like pray in this manner, in this manner. Okay, so some of you have that. Do any of your Bibles say, pray this prayer? What translation do you have? Pray like this. Okay, yes, but it doesn't say pray this prayer. You're killing my whole sermon here. <laughs> That's fine, good. That's good. Now, as we get into this, and here's why this is so important. As we get into this, we have to think Jewish. And uh, when Jesus gave this, he was speaking to a group of very Jewish disciples who understood exactly what he was talking about because it was something that they spoke of in, in or a way that they communicated in their culture. What we're going to find is that Jesus wasn't giving them a prayer to pray. He was giving them an outline of prayer that they could pray. Now, here's what this means. If you take this as a prayer, you can pray it in less than 30 seconds. If you use it as an outline for prayer, it's easily memorized. The outline is easily memorized, and you can literally pray for hours. So here's what happened. A few hundred years after the fact, the church is no longer centered in Israel. It's actually moved to an entirely different country on a different continent. And when 
Bible readers at that point, uh, the, the uh, leaders of the church, as they read this, they began to read this through very Western eyes. One of the mistakes that they made, not intentionally, there was no evil associated with this, but in, uh, without intention, um, they forgot to ask, how was this understood by the original hearers? And so not taking that step to ask, how would this be understood by the original hearers? They read this and they said, it's just a prayer. And, uh, and so it's something that they began to call the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, and uh, sadly would then also pray that repetitiously. So we're going to talk about that. He begins this by saying, pray then in this way, or pray like this, or, you know, but the idea is he doesn't say, pray this prayer. <laughs> so, so we're going to look at it today as an outline for prayer and see, see where we, we wind up. So um, as, a, as an outline for prayer, Jesus begins by teaching us how to approach our Heavenly Father. Now let me just say uh, one other thing. This is a tool. You can't go through all of these steps all the time. Sometimes uh, as, as a dad, my kids just run up to me with their need, and that's perfectly okay. So this is not a prison, it's a tool. And so think of it that way. But he begins by uh, at the approach. Now the approach is in verse 9, and it begins by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. So this, this is what he wants us to know, and I want you to write this down. The God of heaven is a father to me. The God of heaven is a father to me. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, our relationship with our heavenly father changed dramatically. You don't find in the Old Testament people referring to God as my father, uh, it might be the father of the nation of Israel, and you didn't go to God without a sacrifice and, and all of those things. Now it's a very, very different relationship now that Jesus has paid the price for our sin, which is why in, uh, in the Paul's letter to the Roman church, Paul says this, you have received a spirit of adoption, there in your outline, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. In all languages, when a baby begins to speak, all names for mom and dad are very, very simple. So in English, we'd say mama, dada, and that, that's the beginning. Uh, papa, uh, you know, it's always very simple. Well, in that language, saying, saying it very, very simply would be Abba, Abba, is how they talked about their daddy, is the way that they would respond. So he is the God of the universe, but he's also our father. Now here's what this means. He's the God of the universe, but he is also, we, we could say, our, our daddy. And that's the relationship that he wants to have. Which means that there is a certain informality which comes from being his child. There, there's a time for formality, but, but there's also that time for informality. For instance, I, I always liken it like this. As the pastor of the, the church, there have been times when, when somebody will approach me and they, they, um, they're intimidated by, by me because I'm the, you know, the, the, the pastor. And you can see that they're, it, it, it's, and, and I never get this. I never get why, why they are, but, but they are. And if you are, I just want to say this right now. Always picture me like a land crab. Okay, you know what they say about land crabs? They always say they're more afraid of you than you are them, right? So that's pretty much how it is. So if I'm walking down the hall and I'm like this, you know, just know I'm more afraid of you than you are, you know, so it's how that works. But you know what I've noticed is that my kids are never intimidated by me. And, and they don't care that I'm the pastor. 
So after a service, I'll be talking with somebody, and they have done some craft in children's ministry, and so they want to go get a donut or something like that. So what's the best thing to do with their craft? Well, they hand it to dad, you know, so I'm also the butler. So they run up and they hand me this stuff, and so I'll be carrying all of this stuff. And they don't look at me as the pastor. I'm just dad. I'm just daddy. And uh, there have been some times where after they have gone and got the donut, they have... um, we would call it pre-digested the donut and it's on their face and it's on their hands and they don't have a napkin. And they don't care that I'm the pastor and I have to walk up in front of the congregation again. They go, what do I do with all of this goo? Well, there's dad. That's my standing napkin. And so they walk up and they just begin to rub and rub their face and now they feel good and I have to walk up and have this very awkward uh, experience in front, in front of you guys. But the idea is that, that, that they're my children. And so that's the relationship. And so when he says, our Father, what he's talking about is the relationship that he wants to have with us. He wants to have that relationship. So what this outline for prayer is going to reveal, and go ahead and write this down, our Father invites immediate access to himself. Immediate access to himself. And then I I would take a step further. Our Father desires a close personal relationship with us. And you, you can have that through praying through this outline. You know, when Cheryl and I started having children, there, there's this desire to have a relationship with them. And some of us have had kids who they hit a certain age and all of a sudden they don't want a relationship with, with their parents. And that's always very heartbreaking to, to the parent because we brought them into the world because we wanted to have this relationship. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. He wants that relationship. Well, another thing in this, when it says our, our Father who is in heaven, there on your outline, when it says our Father... It's in the plural pronoun, which means I'm coming with Jesus to the Father. Even when you pray alone, you say, our Father. Who's the our in that? Who makes it that the our Father as opposed to my Father? What's the, you and I, we approach our Heavenly Father with Jesus. That's the our there. Which is why, there on your outline I put this, we do not end the Lord's Prayer by using the phrase, in Jesus' name. You ever notice that? Nobody ever says the Lord's Prayer says, in Jesus' name. And the reason you don't use in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer is because our Father is Jesus and you going for the Father. And uh, so that you're both going there together. So our Heavenly Father hears us because we're going there with Jesus is the idea. Then we come to the first petition. And the first petition is, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed is not a word that we typically use in in modern day English, but there in your outline it just means to make holy or to venerate. Saying hallowed be thy name is not something that we are to say, it's something that we are to do. And so Jesus is speaking here to Jewish disciples who were very familiar with what he was talking about. In in the uh, Jewish religion in that time they would hallow the name or the names of God. In the Old Testament, there are a number of names for God. And uh, I I took this week and I created a a little document. It's inside of your program. If you don't have it, it's called The Names of God. And so what they would do, and there on the, the top in the black, it says, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His name alone is exalted. So they would be very familiar when he says, hallow the name, his name or hallowed be thy name. It was something that, that, that they would do. 
So they would take a name of God, which is in the Old Testament. What I did is I put the name of God in the original language, the way that it would be pronounced, and then the verse that it comes from. For instance, El Shaddai, you've probably heard that, just means the Lord God Almighty. And it comes from Genesis 7, 17. It just says, when Abraham, or when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And in the original language, it's just El Shaddai. And so the idea is that in, in their culture, in their understanding, in, in their, their understanding of the scripture, your name was attached to your character. So they would refer to him as El Shaddai or to the Lord God Almighty. So when you and I go before, the way that we hallow his name is we recognize the fact that he's my father, but he's also the Lord God Almighty. One of the things that I do is I just picture the universe and all the stars and the, the galaxies and all, you know, all that that goes into it. And I think I'm talking to the one who spoke all of this into existence. You spoke it into existence and, and you're consciously aware of everything down to the, the very particles, all of it. And, and so, and I'll hallow his name. That's who I'm, I'm talking to. What I find is as I go through this list, and you can, you know, on the back, he'll, he'll, the God who provides, and you know, that, that's his name. As I go through that, what, what it does is it causes me to view the situations that I'm facing very differently when I recognize this is who I'm talking, that I'm talking to. Now, another thing I'd want to say on this is that I don't think it's important that you and I learn the Hebrew names. We speak English. So I don't think that you need to say El Shaddai. If it makes you feel spiritual, then go ahead and do that. But, but the idea is that he is the Lord God Almighty. That's who he is, and that's his name. So uh, a couple of uh, his names there, and you can look that up, and, and you, can, you can begin to do that. But here, here's what I'd want to say. Um, write, write this down. Each name of God reveals something about God. So when it says he's the God who heals, he's the, the God who provides, that's attached to his character. It's not just a name, it's who he is. It's who he is. And so when I hallow, I write this down, when I hallow God's name, I esteem him for who he is. So I, I thank him for who he is, and I also in that time will say, and I want you to know I'm trusting you that this is who you are, and you're going to act in accordance with what your name says that you are. So again, when I focus in on who he is, when I focus in on his names, it changes how I view my situation when I recognize his ability to step in. Also write this down, that God will not force anyone to praise his name or to hallow his name. It's, uh, it's sad that even for many of us as Christians, we never take the time to hallow, to praise, exalt his name, although he calls us to do that. And we'll talk about that more in the, in the coming weeks. The most important thing in prayer, I think this is on your outline, is that God's name be magnified and exalted. What I've learned in my life is that worship is a two-way street. When I begin to magnify, to praise him, his name, I find that he shows up on my behalf to take care of my situation. And, and uh, he shows up to take care of our problems when we do that. So I, I begin by thinking about who he is and talking about who he is in that time of prayer. Then we come to the second petition, which is in verse 10. I put it there on your outline. It's just, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Now that word come there is an interesting word. It means to come or to go. Sort of like if you've ever been to Hawaii and they say aloha, they say aloha, which means hello, and it also means goodbye. 
So this word there in the original language, I won't try to pronounce it, means to come or go. When I pray thy kingdom come, what I am praying in this part of prayer, you want to write this down, I pray what's important to God. What's important to God. And this is where it takes a little spiritual maturity. Um, Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll begin to pray, my kingdom come. And we think about thy kingdom come and go, all right, well, whatever, let's get back to what's really important, which is what I need right now, Uh, which is why he prefaced this whole outline for prayer by saying your heavenly father knows what you have need of even before you ask him. So, So do this. So this is where I begin to pray about what's important to God. So what's important to God? Well, there on your outline, there's a line, uh, the gospel is important to God. Salvations are important to God. Missionaries on the foreign field are are important to God. It's important to God that his kingdom moves forward, that people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we would say. And uh, and, uh, if we were to travel through this this, uh, Sermon on the Mount, we would come to the end of this chapter, and and Jesus would conclude this chapter by saying, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then what happens? All these things shall be added to you. So he says, I want you to pray about what's important to me. The gospel's important. Missionaries are important. Those, those are all, all things. So the way that I do this, I have a Word document where this is all outlined. And these are the things that, that I'm praying for that, that, uh, that are important to God that he wants to see take place. When um, and, and another part of his kingdom come, thy kingdom come, write, write this down and I'll explain it. Who are the 8 to 15 people in my world who need Jesus? There are, in all of our worlds, there are, 18 to, or there are 8 to 15 people that we know who are around us on a daily basis who right now don't know Jesus. And the truth is, nobody is praying that their eyes would be enlightened, that they would come to the saving, that they would, be, that they would receive Jesus, however you'd want to say that. Nobody's praying for them. And so there are 8 to 15 people. So for me, there are neighbors around my house. I interact on a semi-regular basis. They've always been very standoffish as it relates to the gospel. But here's what I can do. I can say, Lord, open their eyes, do something, be working behind the scenes, let them come to the place where they recognize you and their need for you. And, and I can pray for 8 to 15 people. Now I can't pray for 50 people. I, I can't pray for 50 people, but I can pray for 8 to 15 people. There's an environment that my family goes to a couple of times a week and in that place we are like the only believers. And it's so great because I, I can pray for them, that the Lord you would use our, us to be able to reach them and, and speak to them that their eyes would be enlightened. So we can pray for that. And that's important to God. We're all here, I think, because somebody prayed for us. So God wants us to pray for somebody else. So that's thy kingdom come. That's what that means. Now, write this down. When I pray thy kingdom come, I'm asking for something that is not yet here to come into existence. It's not yet here. It hasn't manifested. So if somebody is a non-believer, God's kingdom hasn't manifested in their life at this point. And so I'm asking that God's kingdom manifests in their life. Then go ahead and write this down. When I pray God's kingdom come, thy kingdom come, I'm asking for God's kingdom to manifest itself through my life and in the lives of others. So Lord, I, I want you to manifest your kingdom in the lives of others. 
Again, what a non-believer believes, God's kingdom is manifested. Also, and uh, you want to write this down, implied in thy kingdom come, uh, implied in the Lord's prayer is that I can make a difference. I can make a difference. And in praying thy kingdom come, Jesus seems to imply, write this down, that if we don't pray thy kingdom come, it probably won't come or go. So he, he chooses to work through us, through us. And uh, that's all through the scripture. If everything that happened was God's will, then he wouldn't ask us to pray that his kingdom would come. So he, he asks us to pray because he uses that. He uses that. So praying thy kingdom come or God's kingdom coming, manifesting, is a personal choice that I make every day to pray that his kingdom comes or I choose not to pray that his kingdom comes. And so we have to make that choice to pray that his kingdom comes. So here's how it works. Many times what will happen is we begin to pray, we become frustrated that we don't see a whole lot going on, at least very, very quickly. And uh, I love how Jesus explained it. He explained it like this there in your outline in Mark's gospel. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the idea in, in what it's implying is, you know, day and night, he's getting up, going to bed kind of thing. Time has passed. And the seed sprouts and grows. And he himself does not know. But he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, and the mature grain in the head. And so the idea is that, that when you begin to pray, that's like planting a seed. But if you get up the next morning and you go look and you see that you've planted the seed, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to say, this whole planting thing doesn't even work. I mean, look, I, I planted yesterday and nothing happened. Well, Jesus says, no, it, it's, it, it's, it, it takes time. You've got you to water that. You've got you to keep going. You've got to persist. Last week we talked about persistence in prayer. So here, here's how it works. You take an acorn. You want to plant a, an oak tree. And you plant that acorn. Do you know that it takes eight to ten weeks before anything begins to stick out of the ground? eight to ten weeks. So what happens is under the soil, under the soil, roots begin to grow down before anything comes up. But after eight to ten weeks, just this tiny little sliver of something, you can barely see it, breaks through the ground. And it's at that point, you know, I mean, eight, eight weeks, you know, you come to the place, you go, I don't think anything's happened. Doesn't like anything happen. Well, a whole lot's happening under the ground. We just can't see it. So you keep praying, and then one day something comes up, and it's just a sliver. So what do you do? You keep praying. You keep praying. And ultimately, it continues to grow and continues to grow. You keep on keeping on. Make sense? And so you never give up. You persist in prayer. And you have to trust that over time, God is doing something in the unseen realm that you can't see. But you keep praying. You keep praying. So we persist. Then the third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A will is simply a plan. Cheryl and I have a will that in the event that something happens to us, there is a plan that we want to see take place. And, and uh, it's a predetermined, you know, in the event that something happens. So when I pray, thy will be done, I'm realizing, you want to write this down, that God has a plan for my personal life. I want his will to be done. And so he, uh, he would never direct us to pray that his will be done if he didn't actually have a will to be done. He wouldn't ask us to pray that his will be done if he didn't have a plan that he wanted to see take place. 
So when I pray, thy will be done, uh, that's the place where, and you want to write this down, I'm seeking and submitting to God's plan for my life. I seek and submit to God's plan for my life. And over time, God begins to reveal his plan for, for my life, for, for our lives. And sometimes it's like planting the seed, and we don't see a whole lot. And I ask God, give me a plan for my life. Nothing. I persist. And all of a sudden, over time, it begins to come clear. I love, I love when you have those flashes of insight where it's just like, I know it. I got it. But, but for, many, for many of us, it's this time of prayer saying, Lord, what is your will? What is your plan? So as I pray, it gets clearer. So here, here's what I do. I, I pray that God's will is done in my life. Lord, you reveal your will for me so I can follow your will. I want to do what it is that you want to do. I want your will in my marriage. I want your will in my family. Lord, I want you to reveal your will for each and every one of my children. I don't want them to be in their 30s before they start figuring out this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. The sooner we can figure that out, the better. So I'm praying, Lord, reveal your will the sooner the better so that they can begin going in that direction. And what is your will for this church and this ministry? As you make it clear, we want to follow in that direction. So, so we pray that, we pray that. But then it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we'd all agree that God's will is not done currently on earth as it is in heaven, which is why he wants us to pray that his will is done on earth like it is in heaven. He says he's not willing that any should perish. Would you agree that some are going to perish? Well, that's why we pray his will would be done like on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm not asking God to, to change his will. I'm not asking God to bless my will. I'm just saying, Lord, you reveal your will, and I want to follow that. And I want your will to take place, your desire, your plan to take place. And we seek that in, in prayer. Now, when I pray that your will would be done, I'm also asking, go ahead and write this down, I'm also asking for God's intervention here, now, personally, for me and my family and, and situations. There are some times where I don't have a verse, I don't know if, if it's turned to the left or to the right, and so I begin to say, God, I need you to intervene right now, here, now, and very personally in my life. You show me, and, and I'll go in that direction. So I spend that time praying for that. And then we move on to the next petition, which is give us this day our daily bread. And this is the asking for things. I think there's a line to write that down. So we begin to ask God for the things that, that we need, that we desire. And, and so God asks us to pray for our daily needs. And so here, here's what this means, and you want to write this down. God designed us to have daily needs. God designed us to have daily needs. God made us to have daily needs so that we would then turn to him and ask him to help us, that he would begin to supply those needs in our life on a, on a daily basis. And I love that he says, uh, give us this day our daily bread. And uh, another place he'd say for, you know, just focus in on today because tomorrow has enough problems of its own. And uh, so what I've learned in my life, Lord, I want you to supply today you get me through today, and I know that tomorrow's going to show up with its own new set of problems. This is where you say amen. Have you, have you seen this before? <laughs> and we've all been there. So he apparently in this wants us to ask him to supply those daily needs. Now, 
go ahead and write this down. Experiencing God supplying our needs builds faith. You could say trust. Trust and faith are the same thing. When you have prayed and you see that God shows up and he supplies a need that can only be described as God, that increases your faith for the next time. And I think that God doesn't just want to supply our needs, I think he wants to supply many of our wants also. As, as a matter of fact, that I would hold that if your heart is for the Lord, God is giving you the desires of your heart, as the Bible says. Not that he, he's actually giving you the desires that he wants you to have. And so he gives you the desires and he wants to supply the, the answer to those. So sometimes as believers we come to the place and we say, I've been praying that God would meet my needs, but, but I'm not seeing a whole lot happen. And um, it's in those times where I begin to ask several, several questions. One, I, I, I love the illustration in the Bible where it says that God feeds the birds of the air. And uh, we know that to be true. You've never seen a starving bird. So he feeds the birds of the air. The question is always, does he drop the worm off at the nest? And, and we would, we'd all say, no, he doesn't drop the worm off at the nest. So here's what we know. God says, I'll supply all the worms you ever need, but you're going to have to get up, you're going to have to get going, and you're going to have to go get it. And he doesn't drop it off at the nest. I think many times we as believers, we're asking God to supply, the supply is there, but we're expecting him to drop it off at the nest. And many times we wind up frustrated in that. And he uses the illustration of the bird. So do I, is there something I need to do? Sometimes I, I think that um, God realizes we're just not ready for something yet. You know, our family, some people would think that we're gun family, you know, we're a gun family. And uh, so one of the first things that we do is we give our kids BB guns. And uh, which is, you know, our family motto is peace through superior firepower. So, <laughs> so, so we, we give BB guns, but we don't give them to them when they're three years old. You know, they, they, you, they've got to be four, you know, before <laughs> you get the point, right? Sometimes they might want it, but they're not ready for it. And uh, so I put that out there. So maybe, maybe that's it. But he wants to supply those needs. So I don't know if this is on your outline or not, but I'm not just asking God to get stuff. I'm asking God to glorify himself through supplying my needs. And uh, the, the reason I say that, we tend to live in a culture that holds that God is the God of just enough. You know, when God just was just enough, then, then we're good. I don't see that. Every time Jesus did a miracle, for instance, he feeds the 5,000, he takes the 12 loaves, you know, or, or the, the 5,000 with the five loaves. And um, when you read it in the original language, it says that everybody was, was full. But in the original language, it says they were stuffed to the point where they, they couldn't take another bite is the idea. Kind of like after Thanksgiving dinner. You know, you're just like on the couch in a coma, that kind of thing. And, and then it says, and they gathered 12 baskets full of broken pieces. He didn't do just enough. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of abundance. So he loves to glorify himself or show himself strong in the way that he takes care of his children. He desires that. So we pray for that. 
So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we, we are expressing our faith that He is the ultimate supplier of all that we need. And, and we all have a number of needs that we can bring before Him and say, Lord, this is the situation, this is what I'm praying for. Well, then we go on to the, the next petition, which is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is where we learn to operate in grace with other people. Now I also appreciate here how in Matthew's gospel, all of our Bibles use the word debts. And, uh, but when Jesus gives the same prayer outline in Luke's gospel, he uses different wording. It's at a different time and, and he reverses the order so that it would never become a prayer that you pray. It would always be an outline that you could memorize and, and continue to pray. But uh, in Luke's gospel, when he says it, he uses the term sin or trespasses. But here it's debts, it's debts. And, but we, we understand it to, to mean um, uh, you know, the, the transgressions that we've done. And uh, so we, as, we have also, as we also have forgiven others. So forgive us our debts. And we know that the, those are the things that we've done wrong. So write this down. Sometimes God's children sin. Has anybody else ever noticed this? Sometimes God's children sin. You're going to blow it in your life. I'm going to blow it in my life. I hate it when I do, but, but it's going to happen. But he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And uh, so go ahead and write this down. I give forgiveness because I need forgiveness. I give forgiveness because I need forgiveness. Many believers are held back emotionally and spiritually because they are holding on to a hurt. They've never given forgiveness. And, and bitterness begins to well up inside of them. And you can't go forward spiritually or emotionally healthy while you're holding on to that. And so it's in this place where I go, I'm going to give forgiveness because the truth is I need forgiveness. We've all done some things. So we give that. And then after we do that, we go to the sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that this is one of those times where in our culture, we say things very differently than how they said it in that culture. For instance, if you come from a Spanish background, you hear a sentence in English, you take it in, you have to reform it in your mind, and then you think of the response, and then you have to reform it so it makes sense to those who speak English, and you, you, you send that out. Is that pretty much how, how it works? And so you, you get this. Now, in, in the ancient Hebrews, when they would speak, they did something that's very foreign to us. They would, they would make a statement, and many times they would, they would phrase it in a, in a question. For instance, they'd say, uh, you know, am I not a good person? You know, and you'll read something like that in the Old Testament. And what they're saying is, I'm a good person. But it translates as, as a question. And when he says, lead us not into temptation, you go, why, why would I have to ask God not to lead us into temptation? Well, God's never going to lead you into temptation. But the way the Hebrews, the, the, the uh, people in Israel spoke, this would be very common. So they would say, lead us not into temptation, which is their way of just saying, Lord, lead us away from temptation. Everybody got that. But it reads a little bit awkwardly in English. But then it says, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you have a study Bible, and uh, there's something where it says by evil, and it points you to the margin, many of your Bibles will say the evil one, because that's what it's talking about. 
When we first began talking about spiritual warfare, we began talking about Satan's schemes. And this is where we begin to pray and we say, Lord, is there anything on the horizon? Is there anything out there that's creeping in that can trip me up, that can destroy my life? We've, we've all seen people who've gotten caught up in one of Satan's schemes. They've been deceived. They lose their family. Their, you know, their, their, their lives are ruined. It's on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So I pray, Father, is there anything, is there anything, keep me away from anything that could be destructive. Keep me away and let me see it far away and not, not you know, up close. Chuck Smith, who started the Calvary Chapels back in the 60s, he said, he always prayed, God, keep me from the gold, the glory, and the girls. <laughs> not a bad prayer, not a bad prayer. Because those things can trip you up. They can mess you up. And uh, we all know people. So I... I pray every day, Lord, deliver me, keep me away from it. I pray that for my family also. And then we close at the end in verse 14, we close with praise. And it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When, when you begin to pray, you are hallowing his name. But then when you leave prayer, that's a great time to be praising God for all the things that he's done in our life, for all the blessings that we've received, for the crazy story of our lives that he's now using to minister to other people, for the hurts that we've gone through that now we can understand when somebody else is going through that same hurt, for the, those temptations and the addictions that we've struggled with because now we're able to be used by him to minister to other people. For the, the wonderful things, the difficult things, we thank him for those things because he's using them. As this little paragraph, if you say the paragraph, you can pray in 15 seconds, maybe 20 seconds. But as an outline, it's endless to the things that you and I can pray. It was given as an outline to be memorized so that they could pray not as a prayer to just be said um, repetitiously. Does that make sense? And so with that, we're going to close in prayer. We'll pick this up one more step next week, and uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for just helping us to understand that there is that which we see, there is the unseen, which is as real and more real than even what we see, and what we do in prayer has a tremendous effect on that unseen realm. Father, for many of us, we have believed the scheme that says it doesn't matter, it's not going to change anything, it's not going to help. And so, Father, today we come back and we say, Lord, we do realize that you've called us to do this because you want to do some things. And so, Father, we are going to be people who grow in this relationship with you through developing this prayer life as we set that time and place and we meet you there. Father, I pray that we would see you manifest in our lives and in our situations as we follow you in this. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.